This podcast contains explicit language. People who say uh, they don't care about privacy because they've got nothing to hide haven't really thought too deeply about the issues because what they're really saying is that I don't care about this right. When you say I don't care about the right to privacy because I have nothing to hide, that's no different than saying I don't care about freedom of speech because I have nothing to say or freedom of the press because I have nothing to write. There's a seriously concerning trend in many liberal and advanced democracies where we see a growing appetite in government to narrow the limits of our rights. Uh, a draft speech that was quoted recently by David Cameron uh, after the election implied that simply because you're following the law, simply because you haven't done anything wrong, doesn't mean you'll be exempt from governmental interference in your private life. And this is an extraordinary departure from the traditional operation of liberal societies. That was Edward Snowden, a man who went from being just another U.S. citizen to becoming an overnight celebrity. On the minuscule off chance you've forgotten, he was the man who unleashed a tsunami of revelations about the National Security Agency's PRISM program, as well as other intelligence gathering services that were bulk collecting data on phone records and internet searches and so on. Edward Snowden has been called as many different names as you can count, a whistleblower, a hero, a traitor, just to name a few. But when he made the Time 100 Most Influential People list, he was categorized as a pioneer. And I'm not sure that's the right categorization for him. He was not the first person to leak classified government data. Only a few decades earlier, Daniel Ellsberg had released the controversial Pentagon Papers, which detailed sensitive information about the Vietnam War. And conversations and debates about the nature of privacy started long before Edward Snowden was even born. They existed long before the United States of America was even a country. Today, we're going to look at the history of privacy and where the Fourth Amendment comes from, and then examine some, some of those debates that surround issues on privacy, Things like how extensive should an unwarranted search be? What is probable cause? Is the bulk collection of NSA data constitutional and a few more? I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory. Now, the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution reads, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. End quote. And that idea of privacy in our home, like almost every other part of our constitution, goes back to ancient Greece. Aristotle writes about a distinction of what he what he calls spheres and he highlights a clear distinction between the public and private one. The public sphere, called polis, is where politics, business, and other public arrangements take place, and the private sphere, called oikos, is for family and friends and other things that exist in the private domain. In that way, the idea of a distinction between public and private life has existed for almost as long as Western, modern Western philosophy has. From there on out, many laws, such as the ones the Romans had, uh, well, a right to privacy can be recognized in them, but it's rarely explicitly laid out. Our founding fathers would have gotten the idea of codifying uh, the right to privacy against government from the English, who were dealing with privacy rights in the century leading up to American independence. One of the most important English privacy cases came about in 1604, in what is now called Semaine's case. Two tenants, Richard Gresham and George Beresford, were living in a house in London when Beresford died, giving his effects and death to Peter Semaine. Semaine sued to have the effects delivered to him, so the sheriff of London, holding a valid writ, entered the uh, house by breaking down the doors. Sir Edward Coke, who was then the Attorney General of England, agreed that the sheriff had a right to break down the doors to enter the home. 
but should have knocked first, saying that Gresham still had a right to privacy, summed up in Koch's uh, famous quote about the case, quote, The house of everyone is to him as his castle and fortress, as well as for his defense against injury and violence as for his repose, end quote. That quote's been paraphrased, reworded, and reused thousands of times in discussion about privacy because it sets such an important precedent for recognizing that English citizenry had privacy rights. Similar cases followed that continuously and incrementally recognized the importance of privacy, but far and away the most groundbreaking one came in 1765 in the English law case Entick v. Carrington. John Entick was an author who had written what the warrant for his home search called Very Seditious Papers, uh, about the king and the English government. And Dick sued the court of King's Bench and Charles Pratt, who oversaw the case, agreed that the search had been unlawful, as the warrant lacked probable cause. And Dick v. Carrington, Carrington was the man who searched the home, set a massive precedent that put limits on the king's power and continued to establish important privacy rights for English citizens. The first big American issue with privacy and searches came with the Excise Act of 1754, which is almost a decade actually before Entick uh, v. Carrington. Now, the Excise Act of 1754 granted tax collectors the right to interrogate and search the homes of colonists, who they felt had prohibited or uncustom goods in their house. James Otis, who was a Massachusetts lawyer, petitioned the court to have hearings on the issue. The courts ruled against Otis, but Otis was later elected to the Massachusetts colonial legislature and helped pass legislation guaranteeing that general warrants, like the ones granted by the Excise Act of 1754, would not be allowed. Now, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, as well as eight state constitutions that contain provisions against general warrants. And later in the show, we'll come back to whether or not what the NSA has done with companies like AT&T or Verizon has violated those general warrant laws. But we'll start today by looking at some of the issues that people have with the Fourth Amendment. Before we flush out some of the debates and the arguments, I think it's important to get two of the, the most critical terms down and understand what they mean. Those two, of course, are search and seizure. What qualifies as a search initially was a fairly easy dispute to settle. It was a search of one's office or home and literal search of evidence, but now given a number of new technologies, the definition of what qualifies as a search has to be reevaluated. Widely speaking, a search tends to be any intrusion into a place where one would expect privacy. For instance, in the 1967 Supreme Court case, Katz v. the U.S., Justice Potter Stewart wrote that the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places meaning that the government's unwarranted wiretapping of a phone booth that was being used by Charles Katz was unconstitutional. The court agreed in a 7-1 decision that when Charles Katz shut the door of the phone booth behind him, he was signaling a reasonable expectation to privacy. The court has upheld in Smith v. Maryland that if a subject sends a signal of an expectation of privacy and society recognizes that expectation, then they effectively have a right to privacy. That means if Two people are openly talking about committing a crime in the middle of a restaurant and are picked up by the cameras. They didn't demonstrate a reasonable expectation of privacy by talking openly in the middle of a restaurant. But if unwarranted bugs in a suspect's home pick up two people talking about a crime, then they, by talking privately in the home, did demonstrate an expectation of privacy. So consider something like cars. If an officer wants to search a car, is that an intrusion of privacy? On the one hand, a car isn't built for privacy, it's mobile, it has massive windows, thin walls, and there's not really a lot of places to hide things. You can't really expect to have privacy in a car, especially when it's out in public. Nonetheless, if you lock a car, which is a piece of your personal property, you're sending a signal that the contents of the car are personal or private or of value to you, and subsequently the court has upheld that to full-blown search a car, an officer requires a warrant. How extensive can an unwarranted search be? Well, a brief search or detention is not legally speaking, in violation of the Fourth Amendment. 
In the 1983 case Florida v. Royer, the court said that a temporary search or interrogation, if the search in questions pertain only to whatever had led the officer to pull over the vehicle, was constitutional. Then there's the question of what constitutes a seizure, be it a seizure of an individual or their property. It's pretty easy to determine what's a seizure of property. It means literally removing the property. But you can also seize an individual. And in the U.S. v. Mendenhall case in 1980, the court decided that a person is seized when their freedom of movement is restrained, both physically or seemingly. Seemingly means that the detainee, if they are under the impression that they are not free to leave, uh, even if they are, has been detained. For instance, if a police officer talks to a person on the street about suspicious activity, they're not violating the uh, Fourth Amendment. A person doesn't have to comply, so the officer can ask away, and it all falls outside the Fourth Amendment. But if they tell a person that they have to comply with their questioning, then they're seizing the person. So from all that comes the first big question of how extensive does something have to be in order to qualify as a search or seizure? Effectively, should the police or other officers be able to conduct random, unwarranted searches in areas where they're likely to get results if the searches are not going to be incredibly extensive? Uh, an example would be along the Mexican-American border, where a significant amount of trafficking and crime occurs. Does the Border Patrol have the right to randomly stop cars coming across the border and check for contraband? Or let's assume there's a road right outside a bar where multiple drunk driving accidents have occurred. Do the police have the right to randomly stop and conduct sobriety checks on cars? On a legal basis, it's been argued that, you know, on the one hand, that is in complete violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's literally opposite of specificity. On the other hand, though, it's also been argued that the statistical likelihood that the police will catch a criminal if it's in an area where crime occurs could be so high as to indicate there's reasonable evidence that their search or seizure will result in uh, arrest or detention, which would grant them the constitutional authority to conduct these random searches. For some people, it's perfectly logical to uh, say that that can be the definition of reasonable. For others, it's a slippery slope to give legitimacy to that kind of arguments that the police can set up stuff anywhere as long as they think they might get results because it sets up a system that's ripe for abuse. Now, the court has ruled a lot of different ways on this. For instance, in the 1976 case, U.S. v. Martinez Forte, the court said that Border Patrol routine stopping of vehicles for brief questioning and potential searches did not violate the Fourth Amendment. And in the 19... A 90-case Michigan Department of State Police v. SITS, the court ruled that random sobriety checkpoints did not violate the Fourth Amendment. But in the 2000 case, City of Indianapolis uh, v. Edmond, the court ruled that police were not constitutionally protected in their drug search checkpoints. Here's uh, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor elaborating on the idea that the drug search checkpoints were, uh, were searching for something that was too broad. In Michigan Department of State Police v. SITS, we approved a sobriety vehicle checkpoint for the purpose of combating drunk driving. In United States versus Martinez Fuerte, we approved uh, vehicle checkpoints near the Mexican border for the purpose of intercepting illegal immigrants. These cases are examples of limited exceptions to the general rule that a search or seizure is ordinarily unreasonable in the absence of individualized suspicion of wrongdoing. Considerations specifically related to the need to police national borders were a significant factor in the Martinez-Fuerte decision. In SITS, there was a close connection between the imperative of roadway safety and the law enforcement practice at issue. Likewise, we suggested in the case of Delaware versus Prowse that a state could constitutionally set up a roadblock for checking uh, licenses and registrations 
of the vehicle in order to serve the vital interests of highway safety. We distinguished uh, roadway safety interests from the general interest in crime control. The petitioners concede and the evidence shows that the primary purpose of the checkpoints in this case is to interdite illegal narcotic drugs. This purpose is ultimately indistinguishable from the general interest in crime control. As a result, we hold that the Indianapolis Drug Checkpoint Program violates the Fourth Amendment. Although traffic in illegal narcotics creates social harms of the first magnitude, the gravity of the threat alone cannot be dispositive of what means law enforcement officers may use to pursue a given end. One other important point that came out of the SITS ruling with sobriety checkpoints was this uh, idea that the sobriety checkpoints relied on the element of surprise, and that requiring a warrant or giving people notification would have rendered them ineffective. That's the next place we're going to go in this podcast. What factors should disqualify the need for a warrant or approval to search? In the SITS ruling, as Justice John P. Stevens put it, quote, surprise is crucial to the method, end quote. So the factor of the necessity of surprise disqualified, at least in terms of preliminary searches, the need for a warrant. So then, should something like time be a factor? If time is of the essence, should a warrant be foregone? Here would be an example. Let's say an officer pulls over uh, a car for, I don't know, speeding, right? And uh, when they look inside, uh, they notice a map with a bang circled on it. And arrows drawn all around it in a time, let's say it's 10 minutes from now, written on the map. The police officer decides this is all indicative of a crime. But they have to question the person uh, and maybe even search the car before they redirect other cop cars to the bank. They want to see if there's any other indicators that a crime might be committed by this person. And, you know, the guy says, no, 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 this is, uh, I'm just going to the bank to drop off money. That's the time I wanted to be there by. And the arrows are multiple ways to get out of the bank in case there's traffic, right? And, And the officer really still doesn't buy this. And they want to search the car. First, there's the issue of should or shouldn't they be able to search the car without a warrant. And let's say the officer searches the car because a suspicious map qualifies, probably enough, I would think, as probable cause. And they find no further evidence, certainly not enough to arrest the driver or detain them, but does decide that they want to search the person's phone one one final time, you know, in the hopes of finding some evidence that this person might commit a crime, maybe some text messages or emails. Now, in the 2014 case, Riley v. California, the court ruled unanimously that an officer requires a warrant to search a person's phone, a cell phone, that is. Given that, you know, modern cell phones contain almost as much personal information as a house or an office would. But because time is of the essence here and the officer is required to release the person after a while, should the officer have to go get a warrant if they want to search the phone? Which would be, let's face it, a laborious process. One that would almost certainly be pointless if the occurrence of a crime was happening soon. Or, given that time is a factor, should they be able to search the phone? For many people, questions like these are indicative of a much larger debate about how to balance constitutionality while accepting that crime occurs much faster and on new platforms. Some people argue that the threat of an abusive government is so great, especially given new technologies, that it's more important now than ever that we stay faithful to our values and basic ideologies, that we don't let the fear of a crime give way to a much bigger abuse by government with the power to search and seize as they please. On the other hand, many have raised concerns that try to evaluate a constitution from 300 years ago. The way it was written then is dangerous, and it stops police from effectively being able to do their job. That because concepts like privacy have fundamentally changed with the arrival of new technologies, the way that we interpret the constitution ought to reflect that change, rather than trying to enforce values that lack relevance. We'll come back to this this question of uh, balance and 
striking a balance at the very end when we talk about the constitutionality of mass collection of data. But for a lot of people, that's what issues like whether or not the officer should be able to search the phone then come down to, is whether or not we should be able to forego our principles uh, just temporarily when issues like this arise. Now, the next big problem that people take with the Fourth Amendment is when it comes to the words probable cause and what truly constitutes probable cause. Merriam-Webster quite literally defines probable cause as, quote, a reasonable ground for supporting that a charge is well-founded, end quote. But that does little to clarify what probable cause actually is and how it should be handled. Basically, every time our government has addressed this, it's always returned power to the police and the individuals to decide what qualifies as probable cause. But a few issues do come up with that. Uh, first off, uh, should there be a uniform set of standards and qualifications in order for something to qualify as probable cause? Or should it be left up to the individuals in the field, who many argue have severe and unwarranted biases that cause significant distress, like was seen in New York City's controversial stop-and-frisk policy? While the policy didn't deal with warrants, it did deal with search and seizure, and it allowed police officers to stop any person that the officer felt there was probable cause to infer that the person had committed a crime. Basically, if an officer felt they were able to determine that there was a chance the person had committed a crime or would commit a crime, they could stop and search them. Stops like these go back to what were known as Terry stops, and during a Terry stop, an officer can briefly frisk a person stopped on the street for weapons if they believe that the person might be about to commit a crime. The Supreme Court upheld the legality of Terry stops in Terry v. Ohio in uh, 1968, saying that stops of those kinds did not require a warrant and that if suspicion was present, the stop was not unreasonable. Stop and frisk policies take Terry stops to the next level, and they too leave it up to the discretion of officers to, to decide who to stop. And this resulted in blacks and Latinos making up around 85% of the stops, despite those same demographics making up just over 50% of the city, leading many to accuse the policy of being racist. Here's an audio clip of a Harlem teenager named Alvin being stopped and frisked. He recorded the incident in secret and then sent the audio to The Nation, who published it. It's a great example of where one officer's bias is causing distress to a civilian without any real grounds for his actions. Here's the clip. Oh, that just got stopped like two blocks you know ago, yo. You look very suspicious. Cause y'all always looking at crazy. Why you keep looking back at us, man? Cause you always, but y'all always looking crazy, yo. Coming up the block, always. Then New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg defended the stop-and-frisk policy by noting that first, the percentages of demographics stopped were often corollary with the demographics of criminals, and that two, the policy showed results. In 1990, New York City had uh, 527,257 victims of what was referred to as serious crime, and in 2011, that number was at 106,064. Similarly, murders during that period dropped from 2,262 to 504. 
Dennis C. Smith, who's a professor of public policy at New York University, analyzed those numbers and found that the drop could be attributed to New York City's stop-and-frisk policy. Stop-and-frisk is a great example of where individual biases may lead to searches and seizures being unreasonable, given the biases uh, that people contain that's continuously demonstrated in policies like stop-and-frisk. Nonetheless, a set of universal standards or statistical standards isn't widely supported either. In the same way that you wouldn't hand the other team your playbook before a big game, if police officers set standards for probable cause, they're basically telling criminals how not to get stopped. If you tell criminals that having a tinted window on their car is an indicator to police of criminality and that they're going to get stopped, then no criminal is going to tint their windows. The discretion of officers and judges to evaluate what probable cause is, is a controversial topic. But the Supreme Court has effectively uh, said time and time again, that officers have the power to make decisions themselves and should not have to rely on qualifying standards. In the 1925 case, Carroll v. the U.S., the court decided that probable cause is a common-sense standard, leaving it up to the officers. In New Jersey v. TLO, the court ruled that only reasonable suspicion was required. For a long time, the test was known as the Aguilar-Spinelli test, and it basically said that credible information combined with circumstantial evidence would be the basis for determining probable cause. But the court ruled in 1983 that a totality of the circumstances test was better. They ruled that in Illinois v. Gates, and it basically meant that all the facts must be presented. Even that, however, did little to really set in stone any key guidelines for what determined probable cause. At the end of the day, our legal system has upheld that despite the bias that many complain about, leaving it up to the officers and judges on a case-by-case -case basis is the best way to determine what is probable cause. So then the question becomes, does the mass collection of U.S. phone records, like Edward Snowden released information on, violate the Fourth Amendment? And people tackle this question from many different ways and from many different angles. While not guaranteed explicitly in the Fourth Amendment, the whole Bill of Rights is set up to provide us with the tools to live our lives in the pursuit of happiness, as said in the Declaration of Independence. If freedom is the idea that we can live our lives in the pursuit of happiness, and part of that freedom is to act freely as well. For some, including Alex Abdo, who's a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union, it's the hesitation that mass collection of data causes that's particularly troubling. As he put it, quote, it threatens our ability to communicate freely without having to worry that the government is looking over our shoulders. It discourages journalist sources from coming forward, knowing as they do now that ever, every one of their calls is being documented in a government database. It causes ordinary Americans to hesitate before calling individuals or organizations that they would rather not have as a part of their permanent record on file with the NSA. End quote. For him, it's the way that prison programs discourage us from living a truly free and unburdened life that leads to their unconstitutionality. And Alex Abdo, as well as many others, argue that the NSA bulk data comes at a cost, with no reward. A congressional review was, quote, not able to identify a single instance involving a threat to the U.S., in which the telephone records program made a concrete difference, end quote. Virtually all independent studies, Abdo says, confirm that as well. That freedom that our founding fathers fought hard for, that people like James Otis fought hard in favor of, is being infringed upon. These are the people who say that we cannot forego our principles under any circumstances because of the larger risks it poses. It's like the old Ben Franklin quote. They who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Here's Elizabeth Wydra, uh, Chief Counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center, on why she feels that mass collection violates our Constitution and our Founding Fathers' vision for America. The need to get a warrant to have reasonable suspicion before invading someone's privacy, 
that wasn't a mere technicality, something on a checklist that you have to go through that slows down good law enforcement, something that the guys on law and order sort of get past with a wink and a nod. It was something that was so important to our founders that it was an essential part of the struggle for independence. On the other side, people also see the NSA PRISM programs as helping protect freedoms. Programs like PRISM help fight terrorism, and that protects people's lives, which you can't really enjoy freedoms without. For many, it's a trade-off. We give up some small freedoms in exchange for our lives. In many ways, we already do this, right? When you get searched at an airport, your privacy is being invaded, but most people don't have a problem with that because of the security it provides. Going to each phone num- uh, company with a number multiple times a day with different numbers poses a series of logistical problems. Not only is it insanely time-consuming, but also promises to be a bureaucratic nightmare in order to share classified information of ongoing investigations with that many people across so many fields. The impracticality of having to go to each company every time information is needed, posing the serious security and efficiency uh, issues that it does, has led many also to conclude that the NSA PRISM programs and the mass collection of data in one place are worth it. We have to face it, many people argue, that crime moves at a faster pace and that we need technology that can combat it. The sacrifice of some freedoms is worth it for many when it comes to protecting their lives. So then there comes the question of whose information is something like your phone records. If you don't believe that the bulk collection is constitutional, then you probably believe it's the consumer's information. When you provide your medical information to your doctor and your insurance, or in the way you provide your bank and insurance with financial information, it doesn't become the insurance companies, the banks, or the doctors to sell and distribute. In the same way, it's not the phone company's information to give away. On the other hand, the cell phone company is the one who provides the service and activates the phone. Furthermore, you voluntarily use a phone and provide the information to other citizens as well as the service provider, making it public information. In 1978, the Supreme Court heard Smith v. Maryland and decided that, as the OYA's project summarized on their website, thus, the court held that the Fourth Amendment protections are only relevant if the individual believes that the government has infringed on the individual's reasonable expectation of privacy. This reasonable expectation of privacy does not apply to the numbers recorded by a pen register, because those numbers are used in the regular conduct of the phone company's business, a fact of which the individuals are aware. Because the Fourth Amendment does not apply to information that is voluntarily given to third parties, the telephone numbers that are regularly voluntarily provided to telephone companies by their customers do not gain Fourth Amendment protections. There's a a quote by Lebanese-American writer Khalil Gibran that goes along uh, the lines with this kind of argumentation nicely. He once wrote, quote, If you reveal your secrets to the wind, you should not blame the wind for revealing them to the trees. End quote. The last thing that this debate over the constitutionality of mass collection seems to constantly come down to is what is reasonability? We're protected against unreasonable searches and seizures, so when is it reasonable? Or, the better question might be, does when it become reasonable versus unreasonable change? See, for some people, the law should not be flexible. And included in that is the idea that reasonable versus unreasonable should never change. Many people support this idea of a strict legal code on the basis of stopping a slippery slope. If we change the law once, then we give way for us to change it again, and again, and again, and eventually could find ourselves unable to control those changes. For those people, if we change a term like reasonable once to suit our needs, we could end up giving way to changes that ultimately destroy the point of having a Bill of Rights designed to protect our liberties in the first place. But on the other hand, many people feel that because the world is constantly changing, the way that we interpret the law ought to as well, like we talked about earlier. Today, there's more urgency to stop a crime quickly because of the speed at which a crime can occur. 
Furthermore, an individual can commit a crime all by themselves. Timothy McVeigh did more damage by himself than a well-organized militia could have done when the Constitution was written. McVeigh killed hundreds when he bombed the Oklahoma building, but a militia you know, could not have done the same amount of property damage as well as individual damage on life. And people like McVeigh can do that with minimal contact online or to others, meaning that the only trace they might lead uh, might leave, I mean, would be one that the NSA, FBI, or CIA would have to seize on, and seize on quickly. Things like that mean that what would have been reasonable for stopping a crime when the Constitution was written aren't reasonable for stopping crimes anymore, and subsequently, what's reasonable for issuing warrants and searching and seizing shouldn't be either. The definition of reasonable must be changed to meet new challenges, many people argue. And continue with that, lots of people feel it's no longer unreasonable, especially in the context of a post-9-11 world especially to operate and collect data in the way that the NSA does. Email us your thoughts at Political Theory Podcast uh, on any one of the debates that we've tackled today, or if you have a question or comment or anything else like that on something that we maybe didn't address, uh, please feel free to email that in at politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com. That's politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com, all one word. Uh, please subscribe to us, tell your friends, and uh, leave a review on the iTunes uh, section. Tune in next time when we talk about the Fifth Amendment. Until then... Thank you. Until then, thanks for listening. That's what I'm